0: The Dow Jones rose 171 points today, recovering a little better than half of yesterday's 300-point decline. Helped by some better-than-expected earnings in both IBM and Procter and Gamble, uh, the broader averages uh, also up, but not nearly as much because uh, the impact from those stocks, obviously, uh, not as strong. In fact, the uh, the Nasdaq, the Russell 2000, even the S and P 500, all took out yesterday's lows intraday, uh, but still managed uh, to uh, eke out. small gains, although actually the Russell 2000 was down slightly on the day. But, you know, the Dow Transports were down all day and they didn't even recover. They closed off the lows, but still adding about 48 points to yesterday's decline. But everybody in the financial media, and in fact, I think everybody down there at Davos, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but everybody seems to be completely forgetting the bear market, like ignoring the fact that we went into a bear market and pretending that either we're back in the correction of the bull market or we've actually left correction territory as if the bull market, you know, is still intact and that bear market that we had, well it never even really took place. Now, it is possible that the bear market is over. I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible. I mean, it seems to me again that it's extremely unlikely that the longest bull market in history is going to be followed by the shortest bear market in history. I mean, I mean, yes, it could happen, but I wouldn't want to bet on it. And a lot of people seem to be betting on it. To me, again, the rally that we had made a lot of sense. After all, the Fed came in and did exactly what I've been saying it was going to do since before they raised rates for the first time. And that is a prematurely Their uh, their campaign to normalize interest rates. And again, the most significant thing about that is not that they did it, but that doing it was inevitable. That's why I was so certain from the start that the Fed was not going to be able to complete the journey. And again, that's one of the reasons I thought they might be smart enough not to even embark on a journey. Uh, that they couldn't finish because of the greater damage that may have been done to the credibility. But you know, because so many people believed that the Fed would be able to pull it off, again, I said it was an impossible trick that could never be done because I understood that the Fed didn't solve any of the problems; that the problems were exacerbated. And if you make a credit bubble bigger, well, then, you know, raising interest rates is going to be a bigger problem. Now, maybe only the, the the one of the only mistakes potentially that the Fed made is is overestimating the resiliency of that bubble, or underestimating how small a pin it would take to pop that bubble. In fact, the only guy uh, at Davos right now uh, who seems to be saying anything about uh, about this is Ray Dalio, our CEO of Hedgewater, and Dalio's concern is that the Fed may have raised rates too much, which, you know, they did, but that wasn't a mistake. The mistake was, you know, not raising them more or, you know, more specifically, the mistake was lowering rates to zero in the first place, and another mistake was keeping them there as long as they did. But certainly um the Fed made a mistake if it believed it could normalize interest rates and not prick the bubble. I mean, yes, if, if, if that's what Dalio is referring to, then yes, it was a mistake for the Fed to believe that they could do this. But it wasn't a mistake to do it, just believing that they can do it without pricking the bubble. Now, of course, even if they hadn't pricked the bubble, the bubble would have popped on its own. I mean, it didn't need that pin. There's plenty of pins out there uh, other than the one that was supplied by the Fed. But, you know, Dalio is not necessarily making that point. I mean, he's acting as if it's the job of the Fed to uh, perpetuate bubbles. And they screwed up, right? They, they shouldn't have raised rates as much as they did. And now, uh, you know, we could have a recession or the markets are going to go down. But again... This is a lack of understanding. And maybe Dalio understands it. And he just doesn't want to say it. But currently, certainly most of the people that are, that are out there um, probably don't understand what's going on. You know, they think that the, the Federal Reserve solved the problem. And they don't understand that the problems were exacerbated because they didn't get the problems in the first place. It's like if you are an individual and you have, you know, A lot of credit card debt and all of a sudden you know you're kind of out you know you've maxed out everything and you've kind of borrowed all that you can borrow you know you can't get any more money borrowed against your house right you know and you know you've been living this lifestyle based on credit right not based on your earnings capacity or your savings you've just been living beyond your means and you've been doing that by borrowing money and all of a sudden you know you're you're just stuck and you're thinking okay you know What do I do? Am I going to go bankrupt? I'm going to have to change my lifestyle. I'm going to have to ratchet down my living standard. And then all of a sudden, let's say you find a credit card that you never even knew you had. And it's got a $50,000 limit on it. And now you're like, aha, problem solved. I can go out and borrow and spend more money. That doesn't solve the problem. That just delays the day of reckoning. That lets you postpone dealing with the problem. But now after you max out that credit card and you're even $50 deeper or 50,000 deeper in debt, right, well, now the problem that you had before you solved it with that new credit card that you just found, well, now you have an even bigger problem. And now you have to deal with that. I mean, that's where the United States is. You know, we were able to take on more debt thanks to the Fed slashing interest rates to zero, doing QE1, 2, and 3. And thanks to the fact that people believed that we were good for all the additional money we were borrowing. Because after all, if they didn't think we were good for it, they wouldn't have lended us, loaned it to us in the first place. But remember, all the nations that have gotten into trouble, that have borrowed too much money, you know, There was a point where creditors were still willing to continue to lend, whether it's Greece or, you know, where I am in Puerto Rico. I mean, these these institutions, these entities or these sovereigns, they're, you know, overly indebted well before the markets finally uh, figure it out. Remember, it's 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 never a problem in theory until it's a problem. Well, it's always a problem. It's just by the time the lenders figure out it's a problem. It's too late. And you know, don't expect any of these geniuses over in Davos uh, to to figure this out. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, the the conference. In 2008, because it's at the same time every year. It's always, you know, during the ski season. So all the the billionaires and all the titans of the the hedge fund and the financial industry can all uh, go down to uh, Davos. And, uh, you know, you get all the financial reporters coming down there and they can also ski in Switzerland. I mean, I was in um, Vancouver uh, when this thing was getting started and it was, you know, it was kind of cold over there. Uh, but not nearly as cold as it is on the top of a mountain in the Alps. But, of course, you know, we didn't have all the ambiance uh, that they have over there. I mean, this is obviously a, an exciting place to be. Uh, although this year, the Americans, we don't have an official delegation there. You know, Trump didn't go, didn't send anybody uh, because of the government shutdown. And of course, we normally take advantage of that opportunity to try to pump up uh, all of our bonds. You know, we got to continue this Ponzi scheme. We got to continue to pretend how great the US economy is so that the creditors around the world will keep loaning us more money so we can go deeper and deeper into debt. of course, we like to pump up our stock market, but it's okay because there's a lot of other people that are standing in our place that are talking about, you know, on a relative basis, uh, the strength of the US economy. Nobody is worried about recession. Just like nobody was worried about recession at Davos in 2008. Remember, they were there in February of 2008. All these geniuses, right, were in Davos, right, talking about the global economy, talking about the markets. We were just a few months away from the complete implosion of the global financial system, the global financial crisis, right, the Great Recession. All of this was just a few months away. And yet, nobody at Davos was warning about it. I mean, clearly, you know, had I been invited to be there or if I was there and I was speaking, I would have been the only one warning about it. But since I wasn't there, I wasn't. And clearly, you know, I'm not there now. Uh, so, you know, whatever they say, you don't have to think uh, that uh, they're going to see it, right? Oh, if there's something bad happening, you know, surely somebody there is going to point it out. Again, the closest really I think we're getting is Bridgewater and Dalio about the idea that the Fed just went too far and raised interest rates too much. And and that's why we might have a problem. But of course, he's still sugarcoating the the severity of the problem because when a smaller credit bubble popped in 2008, we got the global financial crisis and the Great Recession. This is a much larger bubble that has popped. There's a lot more air that is going to come out of it. And the principal offender the United States is in far worse shape. And I know when I hear guys like Dalio say what he's concerned about is that during the next downturn, the Fed and other central banks don't have the ammunition to stimulate the economy. Well, they never had the ammunition to really stimulate the economy. They just had the ammunition to inflate bigger bubbles than the one that popped. So they're not really stimulating the economy. They're just inflating bigger bubbles. They're actually sedating the economy because What the economy needs to really be stimulated is a deflation of these bubbles. We need to correct all the imbalances and all the distortions that build up because interest rates are kept artificially low by the central banks. And you create these bubbles that pop to stimulate the economy, the real economy. You've got to let them fully deflate and let the markets rearrange uh, resources and and assets, uh, uh, land, labor, and capital in a more productive way, you got to get rid of the debt. You got to let bad debt default, right? You got to free up these resources to where they could be used more productively. But instead, the Fed traps resources in the same unproductive way that they were invested before the bubble popped, by simply, you know, in blowing up an even bigger l- bubble, allowing the problems to rise to an even greater degree, right? Than they were when they popped before, right? We had all this debt, and then it blew up. And, and so the only thing that they could think of was to lead us into even more debt, to blow up an even bigger bubble so that they didn't have to deal with the consequences of the bubble that just popped. Well, the consequences of the bigger bubble that you inflate because you don't want to deal with the consequences of the smaller bubble that popped means that you have an even bigger problem in the future. But, of course, politicians don't care about the future. They care about The present, the only future they care about is the next election, which is usually just a couple of years away. And so, you know, when you're thinking long term. Uh, that's when you think about those things, but politicians don't think about it. But what is the excuse of these money managers, right? People that are not looking to get reelected—they're—they're they're just there. They're in the financial industry, or that maybe they're just you know big in corp- in the corporate world. They're not necessarily uh, titans of asset management or hedge funds, but they're you know they're 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 high up, uh, have big positions in major corporations. You would think that a lot of these guys would be looking long-term and would want to talk about the, the short-term problems that we're, or the long-term problems that we're creating uh, by, by taking these actions in the short run. But most people don't care either because they're looking at their short-term profits and they're judged by their quarterly earnings. And these hedge fund managers are trying to get their 2 and 20. And so there's a lot of people there besides politicians who have a vested interest in keeping the party going. And as soon as the party ends, they just want to get it going again. I mean, they never want to sober up. Uh, They never want to do what's right. They want to postpone that as long as possible. Because some of these guys think, you know, hey, in the long run, we're all going to be dead, right? They start thinking like canes and like, you know, what if we could just keep doing this? You know, that's what Bernie Madoff, you know, if you listen to some of the interviews for Bernie Madoff, I think one of the things that he said he was hoping for is that maybe he can keep the Ponzi's keep going until he died. And then he wouldn't even have to deal with it because he'd be dead. And I guess, you know, that would be a victory, I guess, if you don't care about the consequences that you're leaving your wife or your children to deal with your mess once the whole Ponzi scheme is discovered after your death. Uh, But in a way, that's what a lot of people are doing. Hey, if in the long run, we're all going to be dead, then who cares how much we're screwing up the country in the long run because we're going to be dead. The problem is we're not all going to be dead, right? I mean, in fact, Most of us are still going to be alive, but even if you don't think you're going to be alive, what about your children? What about your grandchildren? I mean, don't people, you know, care at all about, you know, posterity? I mean, you know, because if our ancestors didn't give a damn about posterity, where would we be? I mean, look at all the sacrifices uh, that the founding fathers went through to create the United States, right? They weren't just thinking about themselves. They were thinking about us, right? When they created uh, this republic for us. Now, of course, unfortunately, we don't have one anymore. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later in the podcast. Uh, but the point is, you know, you, you might expect that to have some of these people at Davos uh, be a little bit more thoughtful about the long term nature of these pol- of these policies, especially when you know the world is looking at all these billionaires uh, that meet there, and you've got you know this uh, class warfare that is being uh, built up. Because of these policies, these policies that perpetually inflate bubbles, they divert resources from the real economy that would actually raise the living standards of the masses, and they concentrate wealth in the hands of a few people, and now they make it easier uh, for the socialists and people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Again, I'm going to talk about her later in this podcast. But you make it easier for these people to ride the power and to, you know, attract the support of a lot of people when you are widening the gap between the rich and the poor because you're supporting policies that perpetuate uh, that uh, disparity and that really undermine the legitimate economic growth that would come along from real capitalism. And because we have this crony capitalism championed by the central bankers or perpetuated by the central bankers, we don't get all of the benefits of true capitalism uh, and in the process, we end up giving capitalism a bad name. You know, on just a humorous note, uh, I, I just read the story today that Anthony Scaramucci uh, is now at Davos, uh, having been evicted from the Big Brother house after just six days. And I, you know, I didn't even realize that Anthony Scaramucci was going to be a contestant on Celebrity Big Brother until I think I heard about it. Uh, I think it was one of the football games or a commercial. Uh, they mentioned that he was going to be on there. And, you know, I've talked about Big Brother, I think, once before because there was a controversy and I forget what it was. And I remember I talked about it on this podcast before. But if you're not familiar with Big Brother, it's a reality show and they put a bunch of people in a house and they all live there together uh, in isolation, except there's cameras watching their every move. Hence the term Big Brother is watching you, except Big Brother is not the government. It's the American public or the audience, whoever tunes in for uh to see the big brother and of course you know every week they 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 vote to evict one of the house guests and anthony scaramucci was evicted after six days which you know he couldn't even stay in the big brother house longer than the 11 days that he was in the white house before he got fired so i'm not really sure what uh his rationale for going on that show was um and uh but you know and I didn't watch it so I have have no idea I you know I was hoping that he was going to invite me to the Skybridge conference this year I've spoken at it uh, several times I didn't go last year because I, I don't think they even had it I forget because you know he was White House communications director for that 11 days and then you know he sold the company to a Chinese company I'm not even sure if if that transaction cleared I mean where what his relationship is now with with Skybridge but I just thought it was interesting that he was already at Davos I mean you know he was so quick he probably went right from the big brother house got on a jet went right over the Davos uh, to join the party over there. But I mean, mostly, I think people that are there to have a good time. There's very little real insight that you're going to get on the economy. I think if the people that are in Davos, if they really wanted to know what's going on with the U.S. economy and what's likely to happen with the U.S. markets, they'd be better off just listening to my podcast and saving the cost of uh, the hotels and the air transportation. And, you know, it is very expensive to party with the billionaires uh, in, in, in Davos. But, you know, before I, I I get on to talk about this uh, Alexandra Okasha-Cortez, the reason I want to talk about her again is because she said a lot of, you know, very stupid things, which is pretty much, you know, everything she said is stupid. But I guess these things were particularly stupid. And so she got a lot of press. And so I want to talk about it. But I want to talk a little bit again about uh, the, you know, the controversy that was the topic of my last podcast on the uh, Catholic high school boys uh, that uh, basically were, uh, uh, you know, shown on video smiling as a older Native American uh, pounded a drum. And of course, you know, I don't need to get into uh, all the particulars about it because I did an entire podcast on it, the lies of the left. And um, if you want to get my entire take, then listen to. Uh, the podcast that I recorded on Monday, if you haven't already listened to it, but of course, if you had to listen to it, then you know exactly what my take was. But what I wanted to mention today is that you know, given all of the information that has now come out, right, that shows that the left completely fabricated a lie, and that you know, uh, the, the the kids did nothing wrong. In fact, this guy Nick uh, Sand, Sandman is the is the is the main guy that was shown, uh, you know, smiling, wearing a, a Make America Great Again hat. And, of course, you know, now that the uh, the truth has come out, right, the left still doesn't want to admit that they were wrong. I mean, first of all, they're still looking for this kid to apologize. And I was very glad to see that he didn't buy into that fake apology, and he basically said, I got nothing to apologize for. And he's 100% right. He did nothing wrong, and he has nothing to apologize for. The apology should be coming from the adults who did things wrong, like uh, the Native American elder, this guy, Nathan Phillips, right? He lied, he flat out lied to reporters after this whole thing blew up and they tracked him down. He lied to reporters about what he was doing. See, he claimed that he was trying to protect the the African-American adults, and he referred to them as being the prey. And these high school kids were the predators. They weren't the predators. They were just standing there minding their own business while these adult African-Americans just hurled one racial epithet after another. They were cursing at him. They were antagonizing him. They were the predators, if anybody was a predator, and they were trying to probably to goad or incite some type of reaction from these high school kids. So uh, this guy acted as if he was like bravely standing between uh, the prey and these vicious uh, animals, right? These young kids that were about to attack these poor uh, uh, black guys. I mean, completely wrong, made the whole thing up. Uh, but he kind of went along with the false narrative that was being perpetuated by the media. Um, Nathan Phillips owes an apology to, number one, to Nick Sandman and all of the, the kids that go to that school, in fact the school itself should be apologising to their own students for throwing them under the bus so quickly just because somebody made an allegation. Uh, Nathan Phillips should be p- apologizing to the entire country for lying to the media for lying. But are they asking him to apologize? No. They're st- they're just they're still acting this kid To apologize for doing nothing. You know, and I'm still reading stuff about people saying, well, you know, the smile, the smirk. I mean, I could see, you know, generations of white privilege and hatred and bigotry in that smile. You don't see anything in that smile. Can you imagine if people were looking at the face of a a, a black boy, a sixteen year old black boy in, uh, in in high school and he was smiling and the people were saying I can see, you know, all kinds of bad things just by looking at him. I can see all the crime or I can see, you know, all this bad stuff that you want to, you know, that white people think, you know, or the left thinks we all we're all prejudiced against against blacks. So imagine if we were I could see it just by looking at him, just by looking at his smile, just by looking at his eyes. I could see all this bad stuff. You know why you see bad stuff when you look at people? because you're prejudiced, because you're a racist, because you think bad things anyway. So if you look at a smiling face of a 16-year-old and you think all these bad things, just because you see the smile, see, you're you're a racist, you're a bigot. That's why you see these bad things. Because if, if you weren't, if you were just a thoughtful person, if you didn't have this kind of pent-up hatred, if you weren't so biased and prejudiced, all you would see is a kid smiling. You wouldn't see any of this nonsense, and you know. Too, I, I was reading that this uh, uh, Nathan Phillips, who is the um, uh, the elder, the the, the 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 Native American. You know, initially they described him as a, as a Vietnam vet. As if he was like, you know, he saw combat in Vietnam. It turns out he wasn't even in, in the Army. He was in the reserves and he didn't see any combat at all. And I think he did a short stint uh, in the reserves. So, you know, trying to build him up into, into something he wasn't as they were trying to tear down uh, these high school kids. In fact, if you read a number of the, um, you know, the new articles from some of the uh, sites that, you know, were you know, so quick to jump to the wrong conclusion. Uh, with respect to the initial narrative now that they've seen the facts right and you read the articles it'll say something like this well now that we've seen the entire two hours instead of the small bit that was you know that was you know edited out right now that we've seen the story Well, there's now another theory. There's an alternate explanation of what happened. And so, you know, some people are now coming to a different conclusion, right, based on some new information. And so now there's another theory. Look, there isn't another theory about what happened. There's just the truth. Right? And then there's the lie that the left is telling. It's not another theory that people have, well, that maybe uh, you know, the, the, the Native Americans uh, instigated this, that they approached the students, that the students were minding their own business. That's not a theory. That's not an alternate version. That's what happened. The theory, right? the alternate version of reality that's complete fiction, that's a total lie, is what the left initially concocted regarding this whole thing. That's the lie. That's the fiction. What came out was the truth, but rather than admitting that they were wrong, you would think, right? They said, "Oh God, we got this wrong. Oh, sorry, Our, you know, my bad. You know, I, I I made a mistake, right? Never mind." Like you know, uh, Emily Latella from uh, Saturday Night Live, you know, got the whole thing wrong. You know, no, no, no. They still want to pretend that they have it right, but they just want to open up the door to the possibility that other people may see it differently, right? They may have a different theory of what happened. So there's two competing theories and, you know, you have to decide which one you believe. There is absolutely no evidence to support the theory that uh, these kids uh, surrounded these Native Americans and were in any way taunting or harassing them. All of the evidence shows That it was actually a group of black adults that were taunting uh, not only the white kids, but the one black kid who was there, who they basically looked at as an Uncle Tom and a race traitor. right? It was all of the bigotry, all of the racism was coming from the black people who were there. And that's clear. But apparently, again, none of that upsets uh, the liberals, Right. They see all this racism coming from black people, and that doesn't upset them at all. They don't see any racism coming from the white people, yet they can somehow infer all the racism just by the smile, right? I mean, here you can see racism on display because the racists are just saying racist things. The, the white kids aren't saying anything. They're not doing anything. They're smiling, yet the left can infer all this racism from that smile, yet they don't see the racism being, you know, coming right out of the mouths of the actual people who are who are saying racist things. So they ignore that. And of course, you know, looking at, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, Native Americans approaching the kids, obviously there is no two ways to interpret that. Uh, so still the left does not want to acknowledge uh, their rush to judgment that they were wrong, but fine, this is going to come back to bite them, right? Because the next time, They cry wolf. Hopefully nobody is going to believe them. And hopefully nobody will apologize uh, when they're wrongly accused of being a racist or being a bigot just because, you know, they, they, they don't want to be accused even more. I mean, people think that whenever the left calls you out, you just have to immediately bow down and accept their judgment and ask for their forgiveness just to prove you're not a racist. That's why I'm so glad that this kid, Nick Salmon, is saying, No, I'm not going to apologize. I didn't do anything wrong, but he should be demanding that everybody else apologize to him. And in fact, he shouldn't even have to demand it. All the apologies should be being offered, especially by the people who were advocating violence. You know, there were actually people on Twitter that were saying that, you know, the kid should be punched. He has a punchable face. Hey, what's his address? We need to beat him up. You know, I mean, why aren't these people even being banned? Uh, from Twitter, could you imagine if there was some, you know, black kids smiling again, and and white people were saying or uh, black, you know, uh, stuff, tweeting stuff like this? Those Twitter accounts would be banned in a heartbeat. But it's all fine. You can advocate all sorts of violence on a minor. The kid's 16 years old. He's not even an adult. I mean, not that it would be right to do it to an adult, but it's even more wrong when you're doing it to a child. But again, I, I said a lot about this on uh, my Monday podcast, so uh, go check that out. But, you know, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And in fact, I posted um, a couple of stories. In fact, my initial post of the um, high school uh, boys and the Native American was on on Facebook. In fact when I put that video up that YouTube video lies of the left and I'm I'm starting to look at some of the comments that that are coming in of course one of the earlier ones that I get is somebody saying hey why are you always pointing out you know the lies of the left and you ignore all the lies being told on the right and That's just not true. I mean, obviously, that person doesn't even listen to my podcast. They just assume that I give the right a pass when they lie, and I only concentrate on the lies that are being told by the left. Look, I am criticizing uh, Donald Trump and other Republicans when they say something that I believe is a lie. I do that all the time. You know, but, um, you know, so I am um, consistent. I will call a spade a spade regardless of whose hand – uh, is holding it. And, you know, of course, a lot of people jump on me, too, for being too critical of of Donald Trump. And look, I mean, I am critical of what Trump is doing, but that doesn't mean I think he's a worse president than Obama. He's not. Obama is way worse than, uh, uh, than Trump. Bush was a worse president than Trump. Uh, but the problem isn't that, you know, there are presidents that have been worse than Donald Trump. It's that Donald Trump could be a better president than he is being now. I know he, you know, talk about you know being dealt a bad deck. He's got a horrible deck, but the problem is, you know, he's pretending that he's already, you know, turned it around, right? He's he's taking credit for solving problems that not only hasn't he solved, but have actually gotten worse since he became president. And why I am so critical critical rather of of, of Trump is because I know that he is setting the country up, setting the Republican Party up for a big fall when this bubble pops and we go into this greater recession, when, when this bear market goes on and you know we have all this bad stuff that I know is going to happen. And I know it's all going to be blamed on Trump and the Republicans. And it's going to make it easier for uh, the Democrats, particularly the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez-Cortez wing, of the Democratic Party, to gain more traction in that party, uh, to move that party uh, further to the left, and to shape the direction of the country once the Democrats rise to power. And we're already seeing that in the committee positions that she has and how much media attention uh, is being focused on her. In fact, they're already calling her AOC, right? You know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right, AOC, is her three-letter nickname right? Kind of like FDR and JFK and LBJ. Now we have AOC, right? And so that's how she's being referred to, right? People putting her into that category uh, to make a major impact on the uh, the economy. I mean, first we had FDR, and FDR did the the New Deal, and then JFK and LBJ were the the, the great society, and both of those. Uh, represented significant reductions in individual liberty and freedom in this country, and uh, you know we're we're suffering now. In fact, nobody is suffering more from the policies of the New Deal, uh, of the Great Society than than minorities and than, than African Americans. But Alexandria Ocasio tortez she doesn't understand any of that. And you know, I'm talking about her today because some of the more stupid things that I heard her say. In an interview that she just did, and I forget where it was, uh, she was being interviewed on stage, and there was a large audience there that was actually clapping. The dumber the stuff she said, the more applause she got. So the people in the audience are, you know, even potentially dumber than she is. But you know, I'm reading some of the articles, and of course, a lot of people just are accusing her of, you know, just being uneducated. Right? That's the problem. She's not educated. No, the problem is she was educated. She was educated in a United States university. She has a, a bachelor's degree uh, from Boston University. She had a double major in international relations and economics, right? So she's educated. The problem is she's not really educated because our you know universities don't educate people. They indoctrinate people and she's been indoctrinated, but she hasn't been educated. I mean why don't we blame the university system? I mean, this woman is a product of the American educational system, and she's completely ignorant of all of the basics about America, about economics, you know, uh, and even though she supposedly majored, in fact, she graduated cum laude from Boston University. Now, I know, you know, cum laude uh, is not what it used to be. I mean, because of all the great inflation that goes on there now, I mean, I think some colleges, and I think uh, Boston University, uh, they base uh, these designates, right, cum laude, um, summa cum laude, uh, magna cum laude on GPA. I mean, some universities do it based on where you are in the class ranking, but I think more and more do it just based on GPA. And I think in order to get uh, cum laude, which is the lowest of the three, right for the honors, uh, you, I think you have to have like a 3.5 GPA. And depending on how you know how easy it is to get A's on some of these colleges, you know, they hand them out like cotton candy. I mean, everybody uh, gets A's. You know, the more and more people that go to college, it seems. Uh, the less you learn at college because they have to bring it down to the lowest common denominator. Uh, but, you know, let's assume that, you know, she graduated cum laude. Maybe half the kids that graduated are cum laude or higher. So that means she's in the top half of the class. That means, you know, she you what? Know, well, imagine what the people think who didn't, you know, get get uh, cum laude on their degree. The bottom half of the graduating class from Boston University that year. But this is really an indictment of the educational system I and mean, how much money are we wasting whenever people say hey we need to spend more money on education we need to get more kids to go to college just point to Alexandria ocasio cortez and say why why i mean what was she doing before she ran for office with her college degree she was a waitress she was a bartender right she obviously didn't need to go to college to be a waitress or a bartender now it probably helped her in her resume running for college running for congress but the main reason that she ran, for, ran that she won was because a bunch of idiots voted for her. That's why she's uh, in Congress, right? Because she promised to steal money from rich people and give it to the people who voted for her and they were dumb enough to fall for it. That is the problem. That's why you know I've talked before that we got to raise the voting age. We got to raise the way the age in which you can be in Congress. I mean, right now you can be in Congress at age 25. Now she's 29. Uh, I think at a minimum, we should raise it to 30 and that would have kept her out for, you know, at least a a term or so. Uh, But I mean, we got to raise the age. I mean, when it was 25, you know, when they wrote the Constitution, 25 year olds had probably been in the workforce for 10 years. They were already married and had kids. You know, they knew a little bit more. So it should be at least 30, if not 35. We should raise Senate to 40 or 45. We should raise the president from 35 to 45, maybe 50. You know, uh, we want people to at least have grown up enough not to be complete idiots. I mean, you need some more life experience, right? You know, if you're not uh, a socialist by the time you're, you know, 20, 21, you don't have uh, a, uh, a heart. But if you're not a, a conservative, by the time you're 30, you don't have a head. Well, we want to make sure that when people get to uh, get to government, that, that they have a head, that they they grow out of their their socialist, um, you know, ideas when they're thinking with their hearts. Instead of their heads, and of course, if we raise the voting age too, we don't want a bunch of 18-year-olds voting because, after all, they're going to vote for people like um, Alexander Acacia Cortez. Raise the voting age up to 30, and you know this won't happen as often. Now, I know some people say, "Well, that's undemocratic," you know, to take votes away from 18-year-olds. Yeah, exactly. Who wants to be democratic? Democracy is not good when you have a bunch of idiots voting for other idiots. That's the whole reason that the founding fathers created America as a republic to prevent this from happening. You know, you want good government. That is the goal. The goal is not to have everybody voting. The goal is to have good government. And the the, the key is how do you get good government? Well, you don't get good government by allowing idiots to vote for other idiots. You're not going to get good government, right? So how do you kind of reduce the likelihood that the people who are voting are dumb? Well, make it make sure they're older, right? So they have time to grow up. Right. And learn more from experience. Let them spend some time working in the real world, getting to understand how the economy functions, how business functions. Do we really want the government run by people who know nothing about business, who have no idea how their own rules and regulations and taxes, you know, affect the real economy? No. Do we want people voting for politicians who have never worked, who have never had a job, who have never earned a paycheck, who don't, you know, who don't have any responsibilities, who still live at home with their parents. I mean, this is craziness. You know, of course, you could take it further. I mean, we got people who, you know, are older, who have lived on welfare their whole lives. They've never had a job, yet they're still voting. Uh, and, you know, do you, do you think these people are going to vote responsibly? And as I said before, you know, I don't even mind. I would rather live in a nation where i don't meet the criteria to vote right where whatever the criteria is to try to get the best possible outcome if i don't if i don't meet it that's fine with me i'd rather have a bunch of smart people electing a uh, a president or a congressman even if i'm not smart enough to vote than have a bunch of idiots electing a president when i can vote because if i'm going to be outvoted by the idiots the you have a much better chance of having a bad government if we have smarter people Voting, uh, who have, you know, under and not just intelligence smarts, street smarts or whatever, understand, uh, you know, economics or business. I would rather have people who I respect and who I think are going to do a good job voting. I'd rather have those people voting, even if I can't vote. Than to have a bunch of idiots voting who I know are going to outvote me. So what's the point of my voting when it's going to be canceled out many times over by people by people who are dumb? So don't think democracy is all that great. It's not. You know, it's the reason we we get people like this elected, and it's the reason that you know this economy and a lot of other economies are in so much trouble because in order to get the votes of the masses, which you need to do. When you are running, you have to appeal to the masses, and these ridiculous ideas, socialism, uh, appeals to a lot of people, unfortunately, and those people vote. But let me get to some of the idiotic things that she just recently said that is the reason that I'm even bringing this up again. So, number one, she was talking about global warming. And according to um, AOC, in 12 years, the world is coming to an end. Because of global warming. 12 years, it's all over. Now, I don't know, you know, 12 years, why not 11? Why not 13? Apparently, it's exactly 12. So in 12 years, the world's coming to an end because of global warming. And so that's why it's so important that we do something about it now. And that's why she said that we should not be asking what it costs. Because no matter how much it costs, we just have to pay the price. Because the alternative is that the world comes to an end. And according to her, this is our this generation's World War II. Kind of like, hey, we had to do whatever it took to defeat Nazi Germany. It didn't matter what it cost. It didn't matter how much sacrifice we had to make in order to finance that war. It's something that had to be done regardless of the cost. And so global warming somehow is as big a threat To the world is Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler. And so we need to spare no expense. Now, of course, you know what uh, AOC doesn't even realize is the sacrifices that that required of the citizens at the time. I mean, she thinks that we can fund this all with the billionaires taking the money off the tippy top. Right. During World War II, everything was rationed. I mean, you couldn't get anything. I mean, times were tough you know, here on the home front. I mean, there was sacrifices being made by everybody uh, in order to fight the Nazis. And so, but she doesn't think that we we, we need to sacrifice. She thinks we can fight this war simply by confiscating uh, the wealth of the rich and it's not going to damage the economy. But anyway, so completely idiotic stuff that she's saying about the world coming to an end and global warming. And the, the audience, again, is eating this stuff up. As she's saying this, they're all applauding. The other thing she was talking about is reparations, but not just for slavery, right? Apparently she wants reparations for the new deal. (laughs) I mean, the new deal. I mean, that was when we introduced welfare. I mean, we're supposed to pay reparations for that. Now, as I said earlier in this podcast, I think the new deal was a rotten deal for the people that it meant to help. I think, uh, you know, minorities, particularly uh, African-Americans, that community suffered more from these programs and again, even more so after we got uh, the Linda Johnson, uh, the, the, the Great Society come in there. That made it even worse. Uh, so she's right for the wrong reasons about why the New Deal was a bad deal for so many people. But somehow she thinks that uh, the New Deal just dealt good hands to White people, right? I mean, particularly, she was talking about the American dream where, you know, uh, white people got mortgages and then they were able to get rich because their houses appreciated. But, you know, we weren't giving out these mortgages to minorities. And so now they're poor. And so now we need to have reparations for that. I mean, as if the American dream is owning a house. That's not the American dream. That's a realtor's version of the American dream where they're trying to con people into buying houses in an overvalued market. The American dream is just that anybody, no matter where they come from, can lift themselves up. Uh, and, and, and and become rich, that there, are no, there is no permanent class that you're born into. You know, Prior to America, parts of Europe, I mean, you are what your parents are. If you're born into poverty, you stay poor. If you're born rich, you can stay rich. In America, you can climb up the ladder. That's the American dream. You're born rich, you're born poor, and you die rich, right? You, you become rich, and then you pass on a higher standard of living to your children. And their children. Right. So and so she has a really distorted version of uh, of what the American dream is. But she thinks that we're never really going to heal as a nation until we pay reparations like the Germans paid reparations uh, after the Holocaust. And I hear this all the time that, oh, though, you know, the the Holocaust survivors got reparations. So why don't we pay reparations to the survivors of slavery? And there's a huge difference there, number one. Number two, the the main difference is Germany paid reparations to the actual survivors of the Holocaust. The people who got the money survived the Holocaust. They were actually in the concentration camps, right? So they went through the horrors of those concentration camps themselves, and so they were paid, right? So if you were in a concentration camp, then you were able to get reparations. This movement today for slavery is you are giving reparations to people who were not slaves to people whose parents were not slaves to people whose grandparents were not slaves to people who, you know, have no connection to slavery, other than the fact that maybe, you know, a distant relative high up on the family tree may have been a slave. So how are you going to have reparations when the people who were slaves are no longer around? And of course, uh, the people who were paying the reparations were the Germans who were alive, basically, w- during that period of time. I mean, to say that the Americans who are alive today, who never owned slaves, need to pay reparations to people who have never been slaves, makes absolutely no sense at all. I mean, how do you know who was a slave? I mean, first of all, so many black Americans today have white blood in them. I mean, very few uh, blacks are a hundred percent black. Like they've never had a white, uh, parent, grandparent, great grandparent somewhere along the way. So it's very possible that there is a black person here whose great, great, great grandfather was a white slave owner. Why should that guy, I mean, does he get reparations or does he pay reparations? I mean, first of all, there were plenty of blacks who were not slaves or blacks that came to America, After slavery ended, they, their ancestors weren't even here when there was slavery, but there were some blacks who owned slaves. I mean, what if you're a black person and your ancestors were slave owners, but you're still going to get reparations, even though your ancestors owned slaves. You know, there were some white slaves. I mean, not nearly as many, but there were some, there were some white people who were slaves in America. It wasn't only blacks who were slaves. I mean, so, I mean, what if you happen to be white and one of your ancestors was one of those white slaves, but now you're paying the reparations? I mean, the, the whole thing is a bunch of nonsense, yet somehow not only does Okasha Ortez believe this nonsense, but she wants even more reparations for even stuff that goes beyond slavery, like all kinds of bad things. And we're never going to heal as a, as a people until we just hand a bunch of money to a bunch of minorities. See, that's really what this is all about. It's about getting more support from people of color, whether you're uh, black or Latino, anybody who's gonna qualify for this money that they're gonna get for nothing, then all she has to do is be in favor of it, right? And say that the evil white people need to have money confiscated from them to atone for some sins that took place generations before their parents were even born. And we need to give the money to people who have no real connection to slavery that took place 150 years ago, but to make to, to atone for those sins, this needs to be done as some kind of a gesture. That's all BS. It's all about hey, if I vote for this person, I'm going to get something for nothing. Yeah, I, I, we should have some. We should get some money. Oh, we don't have enough home ownership in, in among African Americans, as if somehow that's because a bunch of uh, uh, racist. Um, banks decided they only wanted to give loans uh, to white people and didn't want to give loans uh, to black people. They don't want to give loans to anybody. In theory, they only want to make loans if they think they're going to get repaid. And to the extent that some African-American applicant didn't get a loan, it was because the lender was worried that he wasn't going to get his money back. Not because the guy was black, but because of other criteria that had absolutely nothing to do with his race. And that was the problem of Fannie and Freddie, is they went and they guaranteed mortgages uh, that banks never would have made because they were guaranteeing mortgages from people who really couldn't afford to 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 pay buy the homes and repay the mortgages. And in fact, unfortunately, a lot of people who fell into that were probably some of the African American borrowers. And you know, the banks weren't doing them any favors, uh, leading them into that tender trap. But the, the 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 bottom line is, the idea is idiotic. Nobody with any kind of intelligence or understanding could support it. Now, is she just supporting it because it's a great way to get the votes of the people who you're promising to give money to? Or does she really, really believe this nonsense? And it's actually possible that she actually believes it. And that's an even scarier thought than if she knows she's full of shit, but she's just saying it anyway because she knows what buttons to push uh, to grow her popularity on the left. But the probably the, the worst comments that she's making have to do with billionaires and her portrayal of billionaires or allowing a society that allows billionaires, she says, is immoral, right? We shouldn't allow people to get this rich. Nobody should be a billionaire, especially when there's some poor people, right? So we should not allow people to be really, really rich when you have people who are really, really poor. And again, this is a very dangerous idea. And as I said before, that is the very idea that led to Stalin, right? That, that caused uh, the communists to come to power uh, in, in Cuba or to come to power in um, Venezuela or anywhere they rise to power. It's all about that. It's all about it's not fair that some people are so rich while other people are so poor. And therefore, we need to take that money. Therefore, we need to steal. You're basically legitimizing theft. You're saying if somebody gets too rich, then we should steal their money. And of course, you know, if the government is able to steal, well, why can't individuals steal, right? You're basically condoning theft. You're basically saying that it's okay to steal for the rich because they don't need all that money. And there are other people who are more deserving. And if you think that it's, you know, well, only the government can do it. No, the government can only do what the people can do. The government, the people basically cede some of their power to the government. And then the government acts for the people. So, you know, if you think that it's okay to steal, right? That's what the government is doing. We know why not cut out the middleman, right? The thief is just cutting out the middleman if he steals directly rather than voting for somebody to steal on his behalf. But if stealing is wrong, then voting for other people to steal for you is also wrong. But the problem is if you don't like billionaires, if you don't think it's right or fair for somebody to be a billionaire, how do people become billionaires, right? How did Henry Ford become a billionaire? Well, he, he pioneered the production line, and he invented the Model T, and he substantially brought down uh, the price of automobiles. He didn't invent the car, but he brought the car to the masses. And because he was able to reduce the cost of cars by so much, uh, a lot of Americans who wouldn't have been able to afford cars bought them. The initial cars were bought by the rich. But the masses bought the Model T because they could afford it. And in the process, he was paying people some great wages. He created a lot of great jobs, and he got people who couldn't even afford a horse. Because remember, you had to be rich to have a horse. Horses were pretty expensive. A lot of the people who were buying Model Ts, it's not like they had horses. They couldn't afford horses, but they could afford to buy a Model T. So Henry Ford uh, did more to lift the standard of living of average Americans than any do-gooding liberal ever did. And he became a billionaire in the process. Okay. That's you know, if Henry Ford didn't have the possibility of becoming a billionaire or in, you know, in, in, uh, you know, I don't know if he was, think he was a billionaire back then, but obviously if you adjusted for inflation, he was, but if he didn't have the ability to get that rich, he, he may not have invented uh, the model T or come up with any of this stuff, right? All the things that, that we have, all the things that uh, Okasha or, uh, uh, Cortez takes for granted, right? A lot of the clothes that she's wearing were probably designed by billionaires, right? Uh, she's using electricity. I mean, uh, Thomas Edison became the equivalent of a billionaire, right? The companies that brought electricity to people who were using candles, right? And he, and, you know, what else did he invent? The, the, the motion picture, you know, I mean, he became rich, but who benefited Uh, From this, I mean, the masses, the poor benefited a lot more than the rich. In fact, most billionaires become billionaires because they're able to produce a product that is bought by the masses, by average people, middle class, poor people. It's hard to become super rich just coming up with something that can only be bought by other super rich people because there's not that many of those. right? The way you become super rich is you solve problems for ordinary people. You make ordinary people's lives better by coming up with uh, better products uh, at lower prices, at higher quality. And is is that what Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez wants to put an end to? Does she want to stop uh, rich people uh, from getting richer if it also stops uh, uh, poor people and middle class people from seeing an increase in their standard of living? And it's not just the, the businesses that uh, people who become billionaires – Uh, create, but a lot of people who become billionaires because they started a business now have a lot of money to invest and they help out other entrepreneurs. They make investments in startups that end up being big businesses that produce products and services that make everybody's lives better. I mean, you need capital. If you haven't saved it yourself, you have to get somebody to invest who has extra money to invest, right? Not middle-class people. They don't have any, they could barely survive you know, they're living paycheck to paycheck. If you have a business idea and you need capital, you're not going to get it from somebody who's middle class. You need to find a really rich person who has money that they aren't spending, right? That, that they don't need, that they can set aside, that they can under-consume so they have extra money so they can fund your business venture, right? So you take away the the billionaires and if you tell the people hey if you make an investment and it turns out to be a success we're going to take 70 percent of your profits away well why take a risk i mean because if i'm going to take a risk right i have 100 percent of the losses right if it doesn't work out i lose everything but if it works out i only get to keep 30 cents on the dollar that's the deal if it if it, if it loses i lose it all if it wins i get 30 cents and i got to give 70 cents to the government well People aren't going to want to take the risk because it's not going to be worth it. The reward isn't going to be big enough. You're going to stifle all the innovation. I mean, that's the reason that we want our legislators to actually have had jobs and worked in the real world before they go up to Congress and try to tell everybody else how to live their lives and think that you can tax somebody at 70 percent and they're going to work just as hard if they're only going to keep 30 percent. You know, and of course, you know once you go down that ladder, seventy percent becomes seventy-five percent, becomes eighty percent, and you know the other thing that happens too is she keeps saying, "Oh, it's it's just going to be on people over ten million dollars, right?" Just just the tippity top, right? Ten million dollars. The problem is there's not enough money on just the extra earning above ten million. So the next thing you know, it's one million, right? And then it's five hundred thousand. Before you know it, it's a hundred thousand. Right? Because it's all a matter of perspective. right? Yes, people that are earning fifty or or $100,000 a year, all right, they look at somebody who's earning $10 million a year. Oh, wow. They, oh, Sure, they earn all this money. They don't need all that money. They can afford to pay higher taxes. Believe me, there's somebody who's earning $25,000 a year who looks at a guy working $100,000 a year. Oh, that's a lot of money. They don't need all that money. Clearly, they can afford to pay higher taxes when you're making all that money. right? It's all your perspective. Right. It's always the other guy uh, who has, you know, is making so much money until you get into that you know, class yourself and you're making a 100,000 a year. You go, oh, well, oh, that guy's making 500,000 a year. Oh, He doesn't need all that money, right? Well, until you make 500,000 a year and you find out you do need all that money, right? Because I said other podcasts, your, your cost of living, your standard of living, you start to accumulate more stuff. You start accumulating more responsibilities as you have more income, right? And so now, you know, you can't just have somebody rip it away from you, but the incentives are clearly a, a more important component but of course it's morality. She says it's immoral to have billionaires. What's immoral is to steal their money. Theft is immoral, not amassing wealth honestly in a free market. That's how a free market is supposed to work. If you do something right and you accumulate wealth through voluntary transactions, right, where you make people better off because they voluntarily give you their money for the goods and services you're selling, There is nothing immoral about that. What's immoral is about getting rich through theft when you steal money from other people. And that is really what uh, um, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez is advocating is theft. It's advocating government theft. Government can steal money from some people and give it to others. And once you believe in that, what happens is the government steal money from some people and they give it to their friends. See, in these socialist economies, communist economies, there are some wealthy people. But how do they get wealthy? Not the way people get wealthy in a free market by benefiting society. They got wealthy because they have connections to the government. right? It's because of who you know not what you know and what you do so what you know once you go down that and you believe you accept the idea that theft is right you legitimize theft when government does it and you say that you know the free market is immoral what's moral is to have a group of government people deciding who gets to keep what and who gets what and then your economy just completely unravels and that again is something that uh, Alexandra uh, doesn't understand. I mean, think about this. I'd like to ask her a question about: Would she like it if somebody came up with a cure for cancer? Right? Would would she be happy if somebody cured cancer? Well, what if the person who cures cancer becomes a billionaire because he cures cancer and then he makes a lot of money selling his cancer cure? Is anybody to say it's not fair? that he becomes a billionaire. I don't care how much money the person who cures cancer makes. I, I mean, I hope somebody cures cancer and becomes the richest person in the history of the world because that would mean I wouldn't have to worry about getting cancer. That would mean I wouldn't have to worry about my mother getting cancer or any my relatives getting cancer. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we had a cancer cure, right? And would, would it really be so bad if the person who cures cancer became a billionaire? And in fact, it's the prospect of becoming a billionaire that makes it more likely that we're going to get a cancer cure because it's probably not going to be one guy that's going to cure cancer. Maybe it's going to be one of these companies that's doing a lot of research, but it costs a fortune to do the research. You have to put all sorts of money into research and development. In fact, because of government, it costs a lot more to come up with a cure for disease than it would in a, in, a, in a free market. The government adds to the cost. But of course, if there isn't a big reward, if you can't get rich by curing cancer, then nobody is going to cure cancer. I mean, if the liberals like to pretend that people will just work for the good of society. right? That, that, that may be in some kind of bizarro theory. You know, people will work because it benefits everybody but that's not reality. People don't work for the benefit of society. They work for the benefit of themselves. They work for the benefit of their family, the people that are in their lives. So if you want people to work really really hard, then they need to be able to keep the fruits of their hard labor. If they're going to sacrifice in the here and now because in order to do something great, you do have to sacrifice in the short run, right? You have to give things up. You you can't take the, you know, the easy way. Right? But the reason that people make the short-term sacrifices to do the right things is because of the long-term payoff. You take that long-term payoff away, right? well, then you're not going to have as much sacrifice. You're not going to have as many people incentivized to do the right thing. And more and more people are just going to want to kick back right, and just live off of the, the labor of others. That's the problem that you create when you say, hey, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, it doesn't work. Because then nobody works and everybody's waiting for a handout. And, you know, for socialism to work, you have to have somebody else's money to confiscate. But you destroy the incentive to create the wealth in the first place by implementing socialism, which is why you can only implement it once capitalism has created all the wealth. And then you could use socialism to destroy that wealth until ultimately you've destroyed it completely and there's so much poverty, right, that you finally have some type of revolution to get to get rid of it. And I am hoping that America doesn't go down that road, but we are dangerously close and we need to call this stuff out. We need to, you know, when when people advocate this kind of nonsense. And again, that is why I am being extra critical on the Republicans and on Trump for doing things and saying things that I know are simply going to make it easier for this type of mentality to rise to power and to infect the entirety of the American electorate. I mean, we have a lot of safeguards against socialism that were built into the constitution by the framers, but many of those safeguards have gone away. They haven't all gone away. We still have some protection left, but you never know, right? I mean, you get that camel's nose under the tent and it doesn't take long, right, before we've gone completely in And we are getting closer and closer to that point than just about anybody wants to believe.